Um, But we're going to read the Bible now. Um, Today's reading is from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you don't have your Bible, it should come up on the screen just behind me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Great to have you with us this morning on a pretty rainy Sunday morning. It's just a bit of a reminder of what things were like for the entire first half of last year. So a little bit of a throwback Sunday. Um, but a couple of things that, um, that I reckon would be worth you getting along to or thinking about. This Thursday, we have something a little different on. At Anne and Steve Dunn's house, or as I like to call them, Mum and Dad, <laughs> you have a chance to meet um, a couple of missionaries who are over at the moment from Ukraine. Now, I realize that Ukraine isn't on the front of our minds always, even though sometimes it's on the front of the newspapers. Um, But this is a lived reality for those, for millions of people each week. So you get a chance to hear from them and about what's going on. And one of the, I guess one of the blessings of being a part of a global church family is there is something perspective bringing about seeing what people are struggling with in different contexts. I've been a bit sooky this week about the rain But their prayer points are things like, my parents live near a bus depot, and as the buses go up the hill, the sound of the engine wakes them up at night because it sounds like drones that were overhead, you know, committing raids in Ukraine. And so there's just, there's struggles and then there's struggles. And so with that in mind, it'd be a great chance to get along, to be encouraged, to encourage them and to pray with them. That's this Thursday, 7.30, and the address will be in your email, or if you want the details of that, just put a little note on the slips and we'll get it to you straight away. The other one was thanks to everyone who's given to Church Starter. It's been an amazing thing of generosity over these last few days. We've left it right to the last minute, but on the final day, we have just 13K to go. So the message went out on Wednesday, and it was like 20Ks in the three days since then. So we just have that final bit to go today. We'd love to finish that off and be able to come back next week and just celebrate God's generosity again for another year. So thank you so much to everyone who's contributed there. Um, But this morning, we're going to get into God's Word, and it's a word that we really need to hear from Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to pray that God would still our hearts and minds before Him as we open His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, You are a mighty God. You are ruler of heavens and earth. You are the author of salvation, and you are the God who speaks through his word, the Bible. So we just ask that we would be, as your people are called to be, those who tremble at your word, who love your word, who delight in your word, and may we hear and heed your word today as we look at how you transformed your people, the church, into a people that radiate with gospel love people who love one another like Christ has loved them and who are a witness to those around them that there is a God who lives and who transforms lives and hearts and minds, a God who saves, a God who brings life from death and a God who can be trusted in to take away all our sin and give us life forever. And so, Father, we just pray that you 
you would still our hearts and minds, that they wouldn't rush to and fro to the things that are coming up this week, but that instead we might just sit under your word and hear, believe, trust, and obey. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. If you were with us last week, we're moving through the book of Acts, and um, it's easy to follow because we're just going a chapter at a time. So after chapter one comes chapter two, and then surprise, chapter three, and so on and so forth till we get to the end. And last week, we're in the first part of chapter two, where Peter gets up after the day of Pentecost, where God has worked miraculously. He empowers his church by his Holy Spirit to speak in languages that these people don't even, they, didn't, they weren't even able to speak in. And all of a sudden, miraculously, they're talking to all people from different people groups in their own language. And some people are looking on and they're like, what's going on? How are these uneducated guys? What are they, what are they talking about? Are they just drunk? And then Peter, who's kind of team captain for the disciples, gets up and he says, just to let you know what's happening, these people aren't drunk. This is actually promised from long ago. God said he was going to take his word to the nations. And what's happened here is that he's given his people his Holy Spirit so that his message might go to all peoples from all over the earth. And at the heart of the message was this. He says to the people there, you are sinners. You have walked away from God. And in that sense, you're a part of crucifying his very own son, even if you weren't there on that day. And they're cut to the heart. They're like, what do we do? And he says, repent and believe in Jesus. And that day, 3,000 join the church. They hear this gospel message and they're transformed. And so then the question becomes, with this gospel message, what kind of community is it going to produce? Because some who have some objections, particularly to Christianity, would say, look, a message like, you're a sinner, you're so bad that God had to send his own son to die for you in your place, is going to produce an intolerant, miserable, hate-filled kind of community. That's the kind of community that that message is going, to provo- uh, uh, is going to produce. And so the question is, well, what kind of community does it produce? Last week I heard an interview with the author of a book called Unfollow, and her name was Megan Phelps Roper. And she grew up in a strict fundamentalist household and deconstructed her faith in her 20s. I know it's a little bit yawn, but this, this one has something a little bit more significant. Because it wasn't just any fundamentalist church. She was a part of a church called the Westboro Baptist Church. And they're a church that had become famous, or maybe it's better to say infamous, for the kind of public presence that they have. They're the ones who um, pick it outside certain events or places with signs saying, God hates fill in the blanks. They'll go to the funerals of soldiers. And I'm not quite sure what that one is about, but to protest them and to even insult and, and kind of throw ridicule on those who are grieving lost family members. So as you can tell, they're not particularly well liked in the community. But her story is the story of seeing the hypocrisy within the church and then leaving it and eventually leaving the faith. Which I think from that background seems, you know, in some ways just pretty reasonable. But the question that's kind of left around her story is this. Is a church like Westboro Baptist, that even, even some pretty extreme fundamentalist churches would like to distance themselves from as well, have they come about because of the gospel or in spite of the gospel? Is it the case that if you take the gospel message seriously and the Bible seriously and God's word literally, 
that actually what you will end up with is something like the Westboro Baptist. It's just that most churches these days have enough sort of modern Western tolerant values that they don't, they don't sort of have the guts to sort of fill it through to its log- uh, follow it through to its logical conclusion. Is it the case that Westboro Baptist really is the logical conclusion of where Scripture would take you and most just don't have the courage to go there? Or are they that way in spite of the Scriptures and in spite of the message they proclaim? Well, there's a pretty easy way to know. When you open the book of Acts, it doesn't leave you guessing as to how it is that the church was meant to respond to the message of the gospel. What we saw last week is uh, Peter preaches the gospel, and then immediately, as this community who just suddenly erupted, 3,000 people joined it. It's gone from a tiny church to a mega church overnight, and we're going to see exactly what these people were like and what it is that the church is supposed to be like. Come with me to Acts 2. 42 to 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look at what happens when the gospel lands in a community. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship with one another. There's hospitality and deep prayer and a deep sense of togetherness or unity in this church. There's awe and wonder outside that community as people look in and they see God working miraculously. We're not even told specifically what happens. It just says there were signs and wonders that were happening within this community. And people on the outside are looking in on this being like, what is going on here in a good way? There's crazy generosity here. It says they treated their stuff like it was in common. That anyone who had need, others would sell what they had and and provide for that need. There's utter transformation. And these are the markers. And if you were to boil it down to a couple of things here, there are three kind of key signs that a gospel has landed in a community. And it's this. It's devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to prayer. These three things. The first thing is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, the the apostles' teaching... Was, was something that was it's quite clear to understand what the content was of what they were talking about. They weren't giving TED Talks. They weren't giving kind of inspiring sort of life hack type talks. The content of the apostles' preaching was one thing and one thing only. It was Christ and Him crucified. That's why Paul, one of the apostles from later on, says, look, I, I just have one thing to talk about. Christ and Him crucified. That's it. And so what they teach over and over again, and what we have recorded in Scripture is that they explain how all of the scriptures point towards and find their consummation in the person of Jesus, the God-man who died for our sin. And so their teaching is about him, and there is this devotion to hearing this teaching. And the word devoted here is probably best known by its opposites. It's the opposite of kind of casual or occasional. Devotion is this committed love for. They're devoted to hearing it. And again, we're not left guessing as to how devoted they were. Look at what they were doing. It says they were attending the temple day by day. 
So just outside the temple would be where the apostles would preach about Jesus and people would come and hear it. And they're not going once a week. If once a week feels like a massive commitment or a small group, you're like twice a week. Whoa, that's, that's so extreme. They were doing this every single day. To be fair, they're all living within a kilometer radius of each other. So it wasn't like a huge kind of inconvenience. But every day, day by day, people were gathering to hear about Jesus, to hear the apostles' teaching. And they're committed to it, devoted to it. And so why does this happen? Why does the gospel produce this kind of love for God's word and to hear it taught and proclaimed over and over again? Because it's in the very nature of the gospel, isn't it? If the gospel message is we are sinners who are far from our heavenly father and he sent his son to bridge the divide and to bring us back into relationship with him, it's natural. You just want to know your heavenly father and know everything about him. You'd want to know all about his son and what he had done. It's natural. I remember hearing an interview with a Korean-American man who'd been adopted as a child. And he knew from early on that this was his adoptive family and they loved him like their very own kid. But through a series of kind of happenstance, strange circumstances coming together, he came to know that his biological father was not in fact in Korea where he'd been born, but in America. And understandably, he made every effort to go and meet this man. Nobody really was questioning, why would you bother to do that? It's understandable that that would be his, his natural inclination. That this father who'd been alienated from, from for so long, that if there was any chance to actually meet him and know him, he'd want to do everything he could to actually do that. And in the gospel, the illustration is kind of the opposite. Because it wasn't God who abandoned us, but us who left God. We said, we love your world and we think we are just fine to run it without you. And sin is to say, God, I want to live my life without any reference to you in any way. And yet it was him who came running after that, us after us. And so it is natural that when you first come to know the gospel and to know that your heavenly father has loved you this much to draw you back to himself and into his family and to love you and forgive you, to want to know everything about him. I don't know how it was for you when you first came to know Christ, if you're here and a follower of Jesus. But I remember distinctly just the, the excitement it, it welled in me to actually want to know God through His Word, to study His Word, to go from, for me, I'd grown up in the church, so that the sermons on the Sunday went from like, just, uh, just something you sat through, it was just white noise kind of each week, to after getting saved, I was like, ah, oh, now I kind of get it, and why this matters, and why people do this every single week. There is often just a hunger in the new believer to want to know God. And here in this, in this early church community, there is this devotion to the apostles' teaching. They just want to know their God and Savior day by day by day. The reason we always release daily readings is that, that another day is another chance to know your God and Savior more, to be in His Word. And so it will always be the case that when the gospel collides with the community, there will be this devotion to Scripture and to teaching. And in many ways, it's not that surprising. When Jesus sent his apostles out on their mission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, to, uh, uh, to obey all that I have commanded you. That God's community will always be a teaching community. In the early 2000s, there was, there was a kind of a movement within the church. And in some ways, it was a natural kind of knee-jerk reaction to maybe two decades of this sort of mega churchy, very seeker sensitive big show kind of church situation. And so people started to ask the question like, 
what really is a biblical church? You know, what, what should go into a gathering of the church? And so what it led to was like, well, maybe let's kind of question all the major elements that are often there. Like, so there's often music, then there's a sermon, those are the big kind of bits, all that sort of stuff. What if, what if we didn't have those? And I don't know if you were around for this phase, it shows my age a little bit, but if uh, around that time, people were trying to do like really edgy things like cafe church. Like, ooh, imagine if we like set church up as a cafe and didn't tell anyone they just got here and it's all about conversation. Or other churches started doing things like, what if there was no teaching? What if we all just got together and we just like share our thoughts and share community and things like that? And it was, it was interesting because it started as a, as a right questioning of like, what is biblical and what matters? But it ended up dying out and it ended up being rather than like a real innovation of the church, it ended up kind of being a novelty that sort of came and went. I think the reason for it was that probably underneath it in the end was just a very individualistic mindset. Like why don't we just get to church and then everyone just, just share a thought about who you think God is. I think for me God is like a warm feeling like you get after having a hot cross bun. Or like God for me is a this, that or the other and all that sort of thing. And in the end... Churches like that die out because what's at the heartbeat of a church is that there is truth about the gospel. There is right and wrong things you can say about God's word. There might be in scriptures some gray areas, but there are some very clear areas that are not to be compromised on. There is truth and there is lies. And a healthy church community will always be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to a clear understanding of scripture, to a right and faithful interpretation of scripture, to an authoritative laying down of a right set of teaching. Not every belief, even if it's equally sincere, is equally true. It matters, and truth matters. And a gospel community loves the truth because it's the truth of the gospel that sets us free. And so we'll always be a, a community where there is teaching. We have teaching in small groups, we have teaching on Sunday gatherings. It'll always be a community where there is devotion to God's word. And this was the same of the early church, and it will be till Christ returns. That's the first thing. There is, this, there is this devotion to the apostles' teaching. But they're also devoted to fellowship. Look what it says here as I go back over Acts 2, 42 to 46. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice that they were devoted here to the fellowship. So this isn't just like a casual kind of coming together of people. This isn't a, a common interest club where it's like we're all sort of about the same thing in the same sort of way. There is a commitment to the fellowship. And the word here, the root word koina, means commonness. That's something they have in common. There is a shared fellowship that they now have. When the gospel lands in a community, when you understand that you've been saved and made one with Christ, it's not just you and God now. It's you and God and his church family. That you are now one with a bunch of people that you have no familial relationship to. Going back to the story of the man who discovered that his father was living in the same country as him, that his biological father was there. He also detailed that the next few years of his life were spent working out where all his relatives lived in his country at the time. 
And he kind of went on like almost like a nationwide tour, just getting in touch with cousins and second cousins and all this family that he had no idea were living, and even a few of them living right nearby him. It was like his whole world had been changed overnight. He realized suddenly, I have this deep connection with these people who are not that far from me. And in the same way, to come to Christ is to gain a church family. That it's not that you just get this relationship with God and you're like, well, that's it, I'm sorted now, I've got my ticket to heaven punched. You realize, actually, now I have this connection, this deep connection, this fellowship with all these other people around me. They're now my brothers and sisters in Christ. I have older kind of mums and dads in the faith and younger brothers and sisters in Christ. Because this is what God's church is. God's church is not a building. In fact, the reason we call church, you know, church buildings a church is it's really meant to be short for church building. Well, the reason that we call a Sunday gathering church is it's meant to be short for church gathering. But in the usage of the word and the repetition of it, it can start to seem like the building is actually the church. In fact, probably one of the most helpful, I don't know, if it's not an experiment, but like one of the most helpful things we kind of did as a whole as a church was coming down here to a high school. This is not, a ch- if you hadn't noticed, this is not a church building. There are many church buildings where you can like dunk a basket at the end of the service, right? We are in a school gym. And the reason that matters is God's, wherever God's people are, there's the church. It's not a building or a location or a time. And we gather, not just because it's something we, we don't have much on, or there's nothing else to do, or why not? We gather because we have this fellowship in Jesus. And what the early church saw was like they had this deep connection with one another. There was a oneness, a commonness. And then kind of punning on this word, Luke writes here, and they shared all things in common. And just to be clear, because some people, and not, not meaning this as a joke in any way, would say that this is the text that shows that Jesus was a communist. You're like, okay, until I see the seizing of the means of production here, I'm not buying into it. But what you saw was, and you'll see it again chapters later, was this voluntary, not mandatory or state-enforced, this voluntary giving of their things to one another. They still own their own stuff. There's not like they just piled up a big stash of cash in the middle of town and everyone could just go whenever they needed to and pick at it. Now, we're told here by Luke that what they did was, as a community, because they saw themselves as one in Christ, then when someone else was in need, they weren't just like, well, too bad for you, or maybe you should have worked harder, or not my job, not my prob. Instead, they would look at those people and be like, I have a little bit extra. I'm going to sell my stuff, because you didn't have a bank account in those days, or savings kind of stored up. You would see that someone there was in need, sell something, turn it into cash so that you could provide for their need. This was the way that this gospel community worked. It was absolutely transformative. And they weren't doing this because they were compelled to or forced to or guilted into. In this church community, there is deep joy. It's people's delight to do it. And if you've ever experienced that in church community where someone at just the right time has met your need or where you've had the opportunity because you're you're the one who has a bit extra to meet someone's need at just the right moment, you'll know the joy that they were experiencing here. And the community around them is looking on at them being like, what is going on here? These people are not, they're not family connections because it was expected in an ancient culture. In fact, it was shameful in an ancient culture as it is in many cultures today to not meet the needs of your family or extended family. You were obliged to. But these people were not family members and they were acting like they were. 
It was radical. So there is often a belief out there, and it pretty much only exists in, in Western individualistic societies or you know, church communities like ours, the belief that you can be a Christian and not actively and deeply involved in Christian community. And it is technically true. That's partly where it comes from. Peter, in the book of Acts, gets arrested and he's put in jail and he's chained. And at that point, no, he's not going to the daily gathering at the temple. It's just him and God in that moment. But what we'll see in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament is that this oneness that you have in Christ through the gospel produces in God's people a deep desire to meet together, a deep desire to love and serve one another, a deep desire to fulfill the more than 70 commands there are in the New Testament to one another, to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another. None of those things can be lived out when it's just you and God by yourselves. God's people love to gather. They did then and they do now across the world, even when it's a great peril to themselves. An organization called Open Doors that we support here supports the persecuted church across the globe. And every year in the lead up to the Easter weekend or the time across the world by different names where people celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, they will often pray for those who are in countries where they face persecution because this particular weekend sees a spike in persecution. They told the story of Michelle, who's a pastor's wife at Zion Church in Sri Lanka. And on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday in 2019, she was standing by the door greeting those who were coming in for the service. And it was 8.58, and the main service at Zion Church was about to begin, and she greeted a new visitor, which isn't uncommon on that weekend, a young man with a backpack, and she offered to show him a seat, but he declined and kept walking past her. At that moment, she realized that she'd forgotten a prop for the service and went to a home that was nearby. She went and collected it, and by the time she came back at 9.02, it detonated an explosion and 31 Christians had been killed. And even within the tragedy of that story, Michelle continued to have a faith-filled response to the attack. Her prayer was this. She said, please pray, continue to pray for us, especially for the 83 families who were affected that they will grow spiritually and more than anything else, that they will bring souls through this incident to the Lord. That's our desire. And they continue to gather. And you can hear it of in churches all over the world. Even recently hearing from a pastor in Vietnam, their concern on Sunday is not, will we have enough people for the kids roster? Their concern is because we're not a registered church, will this be the week where our gathering is stormed and where we get fined or arrested? And even so, God's people continue to gather and gather and gather. And we'll see it in the book of Acts. As the threats of violence mount, the church continues to gather, the church continues to preach. It's the gospel that produces this kind of community. A deep oneness, a commonness, as he says here. A fellowship not of interests, but that's deeper even than blood. A oneness in Christ. And so they love to meet together, and they do it day by day. And not only that, they don't just do it in public gatherings. Did you see what it said there? They're breaking bread. Now, some have, some have wondered whether or not this is a reference to communion. The way that Luke uses it here and in the Gospel of Luke would probably indicate that this is just the common usage in terms of having meals together. 
They don't just get together, by the way, and just like snap baguettes over their knee or something like that. The breaking of bread is obviously kind of like a symbol for this is how you start a meal together. And these people who don't know each other are fellowshipping with one another. They're having people over to their house, which again, in an ancient culture, is a deep sign of connection. Why does Jesus get accused of not being a man of God? It says because he eats with sinners and tax collectors. That is, he has deep fellowship with them. He shares a meal. It's a sign of community. But here, this church community are meeting with one another, not just in public gatherings, but in one another's houses. They're sharing things. They're meeting needs for one another. It's producing this incredible community. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the fellowship. And they're devoted to one more thing, to prayer. In this passage, it says they are devoted to the prayers. And that could mean that there were some, and we have some in the New Testament, what seemed to be kind of set prayers that the church had already, the early church had already established. But seeing that throughout the book of Acts, there is just constant prayer and a constant seeking of God, it's probably just prayer generally is the easiest way to do it. There is a commitment to prayer. And why is this the natural impact of the gospel? Because just to understand the gospel is to say, I'm a sinner who could not help themselves that I could not save myself, I could not redeem myself, and I needed God to intervene in human history to pay for my sin, and not only that, but to send His Spirit into my heart so that I would trust in Jesus so that I might come to know salvation and be adopted into His family. And if that's how much I needed God then, then I need Him just as much every single day. And so there is this, this prayerfulness in the book of Acts, this community, this trust in Jesus and it follows through from the first chapter. In the first chapter that we read together in Acts 1.14, we're told that all these with one accord were devoting themselves, so that same word again, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Just think on that, by the way, as well, that they were there and part of the early church as well. If anyone knows that you are not divine, it's your family, right? Who's got the best stories on you? Who knows what you were really like as a kid? It's your family, 100%. But they're here and in the church, and they too are a part of this community that are devoted to prayer. The gospel leads to this deep seeking of God through prayer. A church that loves to pray, loves to see prayers answered. The only thing better than a church community thriving and seeing people saved is a church community that sees that happen in response to prayer. Because the flip side is, as a, if a church community grows, and we're not particularly prayerful about it, the logical outcome is usually that we'll become prideful. Like, it's because we, we know how to do church. We've got it right. Everyone else has got it wrong. We've got it nailed down. It's because of what we do. But here in the book of Acts, the pattern is laid for the church throughout all, throughout all time. That the church is to depend on God, to seek God, to seek His ways, and to do things not according to the ways around them, but to do them in the counterintuitive, kingdom-minded ways that He has ordained for it to happen. The gospel brings deep prayer. And so as this church community is transformed by the gospel, we see this commitment, this devotion to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. And then the result is that people get saved. The church grows. Look what happens in Acts 2, 46 to 47. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The church is genuinely transformed by the gospel 
will actually grow in favor with those around them. Now, you need to be careful on this point because it's not the case that if a church is holding fast to the gospel and living in a way that honors Christ, that it will mean that everyone is going to like you always. And you don't have to get many chapters deep into the book of Acts to realize that the church, as faithful and as radical as they were, faced persecution pretty quickly on. But what you will also see, actually, is a mix. It's not just that the church is hated. It's that the church grows in favor with those around them. In fact, the pattern often is when a church is faithful that you get both. That to those who are near in personal relationship, as they see your life transformed by the gospel, it endears people to the gospel. It shows that the gospel is real, that God is real, that God is not just some distant concept or idea or a religion, but that he is a God who is a person that can be related to, a heavenly father. And as you live a life laid down for him, the people around you should be asking questions in a good way about what is happening in your life. But it's also the case that whatever culture the gospel goes into, it will clash with some culture on some point. And in different parts of the world, the gospel is disbelieved for opposite reasons. In some cultures, it's too liberal. In others, it's too conservative. But the truth is the gospel that transcends every culture will at some point offend every culture. But the pattern here is that as the church follows Christ, that both happen. They grow in favor with those around them as rising opposition at the leadership and political and state level increases and increases and increases. And this is to fulfill Jesus' words. When he was preparing his disciples for his death, in John 13 35, he says to them, By this the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. That his main missional program is like, as you guys love one another radically, people will look in on that and will be like, wow, what has happened in this community? It is in every way the opposite of where we started. The Westboro Baptist Church. One that, that seems to deliberately even go after an antagonistic approach to others. That actually, no, instead, as you follow Christ and hold fast to the gospel, yeah, persecution will rise, but also there should be a growing in favor with those around you as they see your lives transformed. Now, so what do we do with this? Well, the first is this. If you are here and a follower of Christ, and particularly a part of our church community here, would you pray that we would be a community like this? I don't know what your thoughts are as you, as you read through the description of that early church. But there are some ways and really tangible ways in which you can see and probably have experienced in church life here those kind of things, those dynamics. A love for God's word, a love for one another, a meeting of needs, and a devotion to prayer. But there are other ways in which you look at that church and you're like, wow, that's like, could that really happen today? Could people be that radically devoted to one another? But there's nothing in Scripture here to say that that was isolated just to that particular time. That it's the same gospel we believe in and the same Holy Spirit. So might we be a church that are devoted to praying that God's church would be a witness like this? Leonard Ravenhill, who's a 20th century evangelist, said this. He said, No one is greater than their prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. See what he did there? Explain more where that came from. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. It's very hard to do this, by the way. 
Many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. We are called to be devoted to prayer, that it's God who can bring about this kind of transformation in a community. And as we look at our calling, as we did earlier in this year, that if you're a follower of Christ, then you yourself are a witness and a missionary. And that if Jesus' church is faithful, is to hold out the gospel and to make more and stronger disciples, then it must be that we'd be praying that we'd be transformed inside and out. That Christ would be adding to our number week by week, not in spite of us, but through His Holy Spirit at work through us. That people would be able to come in and be a part of this fellowship, as they can in many ways, and see the love of Christ, the love of a God, manifested in a community. That we would be like that. That's the first challenge to you. If you're here in a believer, to be praying and devoted to praying, that God would transform us to be like this. And as we go into the book of Acts week after week after week, that we would actually, as we open the Scriptures, see rather than that, that our church community is kind of diverging from what we see in Scriptures, that year by year we'd be getting closer and closer in line with what we see in Scripture that we wouldn't be like that ancient writer who opened the Gospels and said, either these are the Gospels or we are not Christian, but who would open the Scriptures and be like, what I see in Scripture here is what I see in the community around me. A love for God, a love for His Word, a love for His people, and a devotion to prayer. That's the first one. And the second one is, if you are here and visiting church, I want to invite you to come, to come along to Newish After Church and to find out what the next steps are. It might be that you're just joining church and you're like, I'm keen, I'm ready to jump in. Or you might have a bunch of hesitations. But the truth is that if you're a follower of Christ, you're called to thrive and be a part of His church community. And we'd love you to be a part of things just in terms of like, it might not be the right time for you to join. We don't know what your story is. And it might be the case that the reason you're here is that you're burned pretty badly at a church community. And even now, you're like, I just... At the moment, just off the back of that, I'm not ready to jump in community. What we'd love to do is to be able to at least be praying for you in this phase. Because the natural progression is that if you know Christ, that you are one with His people, that the natural expression of that normally, outside of extraordinary circumstances and outside of extraordinary tragedy, is that you would be a part of His fellowship and His people. That you'd have a chance to serve and to be served, to love and to be loved. And experience the love of Christ in a church community. And so we'd love in that to be praying for you. To be praying through what your doubts are maybe as to why it is that you feel hesitant about being a part of a church community. Whatever it is. We want to do this because we know that this is how the church is called to be. And the church, when it follows Jesus and is empowered by His Spirit, is, as Spurgeon said, the dearest place on earth. Let's pray that we might be like this. Father, we praise you that the church was your idea, that we, everyone here who believes in you, is united by the blood of Christ, saved, redeemed by grace, welcomed in, forgiven, made new, adopted in. Father, we just pray that as a church community, that week by week and year by year, we would be bringing our lives under Scripture, that we would be loving like you love us, and as you call us to love one another. And Father, we pray that you might do this for the sake of your holy name.
Amen.